diverted and went to first and second Thessalonians in order to identify the material as the same as what we're talking about in Revelation. And what we did last week is notice that passages in first uh, Thessalonians 4 of a figurative nature was the same kind of language given in Matthew 24 and Luke 21 and Mark 13 and also in the book of Revelation. And then when we look at the total context of 1 Thessalonians 4, reading the first three chapters and the fifth one following, we saw that we were looking at the same subject that we have right here. It's just something that was not as near at hand as it is when we get to Revelation. And what we've been trying to do as we study Revelations is to point that Revelation point out that Revelations does not set in some isolated book from the rest of the New Testament, uh, recording things that have nothing to do with what has happened or been said before. But rather, beginning back in the Gospels, the Lord had prophesied of the downfall of the Jewish nation, the destruction of the city, and the downfall of the temple, and then the victory of Christianity over Judaism and how it would encompass the entire world. After the Lord prophesied that, he also identified his prophecy for something that had been written in the Old Testament, uh, even in Matthew 24, 15, stating that what he was talking about was the same thing that Daniel wrote about when he spoke of the abomination of desolation. Then we went on through the book of Acts and noted that all through the book of Acts, the persecuting force against Christianity is the Jews. And then Rome, only to the extent that they're used by the Jews. Then we left the book of Acts and got into the letters of the apostles, and we noted that in these letters, we repeatedly run into Christians who are being severely persecuted, and the writer is pleading with them to hang in there, and there is the reminder that there is a judgment coming on their persecutors, and that, that this day of wrath for their persecutors would actually be vindication for the people of God. And this term is referred to in various ways. Peter said, uh, the time is at hand. It's now time for judgment to begin at the house of God, writing to a persecuted people. James said, be patient. Uh, he's near at hand, right at the door. Uh, the Hebrew writer said in the 10th chapter, these things are about to take place. And then we noted in First and Second Thessalonians that he was writing of a wrath of God to come, and then he identified certain signs uh, after that falling away or apostasy that would take place when he would come in judgment on this persecuting force. And when we looked at the context, we saw the persecuting force uh, was the Jews. Now, what I'd like to briefly do is the overlays that we've covered so far. Let's go through them quickly. And then I've got about three new overlays for tonight that we'll look at in conjunction with the 12th chapter. First of all, we noted that, let's see, is that clear? Is, we noted in the, the date itself that from information outside the Bible, the external evidence from the standpoint of pure scholarship favored in 470 AD. And we noted that although the majority of Bibles uh, have this term 96 AD in it on Revelation, that in reality the majority of scholars put it before 70 AD. Uh, that what the Bible has there coincides. 
coincides with the majority of theologians who interpret the book and have interpreted it down through the years and the position of various churches on the Bible. But when it comes to the actual scholars, the historians, the archaeologists, that the majority of them actually place the book before 78 AD. Then we noted that the internal evidence within the Bible itself that those passages in the Gospels and letters spoke of a coming judgment to take place in the generation of those people and during their lifetime and something that was to come soon. Again, this continues right into Revelation. And Revelation introduces itself about a judgment that is imminent, speedily to come place, uh, come to pass, and simply is taken up where the others have left off. Alright, then we noted in Revelation that at the time that Revelation was written, Judaism was a persecuting force against Christianity. And we noted that after 70 AD, this simply is not the case. That Judaism is no longer a persecuting force against Christianity after 70 AD. Okay, we noted that the word itself meant an uncovering, a revealing. If Revelation is a book that cannot be understood, or if it's a book that's intended to hide things, then we have a contradiction in terms. Because the book, the, literally the word itself means to reveal, to uncover, to make it so that you can understand. And John said this is exactly what was happening. And also it was something that was going to soon take place and he puts emphasis on those individuals that were hearing right then and letting them know that in fact literally in the Greek it was something that was going to speedily take place. And we noted that part of our problem in understanding Revelation is that whereas John was writing to a particular people almost 2,000 years ago in a specific situation who were very familiar with the things that he was writing about, we sit back today, centuries later, as people have gone through the centuries, and many times read it almost as if the writer was writing to us. And that each generation has had a tendency to interpret it in light of whatever forces were at bay during their time. For example, that during the time of papal Rome and when the Protestants were rebelling against it, the most common way of interpreting Revelation was the bad guy, the beast within Revelation becomes the Catholic Church, or the Pope, the Pope of Rome. And we can see through the centuries that other groups and organizations have interpreted it different ways, depending on who was the bad guy on the block at that time in history. It's written to the seven churches in the province of Asia. We noted that after 70 AD, there were many more than seven churches. Before 70 AD, according to our historical record, there were seven churches in the province of Asia. And he names the churches, also points out that this information is being signified. In other words, he's telling you in the very beginning that the information is not literal that you're getting, that you're getting it in symbolic terms, figurative language that has meaning. Okay, we alluded to this, all the passages referring to the Jewish persecution uh, throughout the book of Acts, and then the promise of Jesus of what would happen to those people, who, those Jews who persecuted 
Christianity and those who were actually persecuted to the point of death, the apostles and other prophets. In the writing of the churches, we constantly find this statement to every last one, he that overcometh. And at each time with this statement in similar terms, there is this fact that those people at that time, John is writing to those people almost 2,000 years ago about an imminent situation that's going to affect them. And then he makes a statement specifically to them that he that overcometh would receive the crown of life or a similar passage. And John, as he writes it, is himself a persecuted person that has been banished to the Isle of Patmos because of his testimony concerning Christ. Okay, next, we noted the parallels between the Lord's forecast of the destruction of Jerusalem and John's visions and revelation. And there are the six illustrations we've got there showing a parallel between something stated in the destruction of Jerusalem by Jesus and a parallel language over the Revelation. Sometimes the figurative language is exactly the same and used, used in the same way. Now, here's our first uh, new one for tonight. Let's see now. Okay. What we've already come in contact with, and we'll hit it again in this 12th and 13th chapter, is the numbers that keep coming up in Revelation that have reference to the period of time under consideration uh, in the downfall of this city that's being judged and all the other events that are going to happen. Is the term 1260 days, 42 months, and time, times, and half a time. Those three terms are used interchangeably in the book of Revelation. And we know if you multiply 42 times 30, you come up with 1260. And so you've got 42 months, or 1260 days, or time, times, and half time. In other words, to my mind, when you say the same thing in three different ways, you're really trying to emphasize it and make it clear that you are saying whatever is being said there. And so he says, 42 months, he could have just said it all the way through, but he doesn't. You'll say 42 months and come along and say 1260 days, and then turn around and say time, times, and half a time, and he'll use all of this interchangeably. Now, Vespasian received his commission from Nero and declared war on Jerusalem in February AD 70. The siege ended with the fall of Jerusalem and the burning of the temple in the city in August AD 70. Now, this information is taken from several places. One is Josephus. And another, another is Eusebius. Eusebius is the church historian of those early centuries. Uh, Eusebius wrote in the 300s uh, from materials, many of which that we don't even have available today. And he records the length and the starting of the Bible exactly as Josephus records it in his, in his average. And so here we have a period when we go to secular history, we have a statement that exactly 42 months elapsed from the time that war is declared and they began to besiege Jerusalem until Jerusalem would finally fall and be destroyed. And it's interesting that two things now. It parallels the 42 months, 1260 days, time, times and a half that we have in Revelation. And we also noted something else that the earliest complete version of the New Testament that we have is the Syrian version. The Old 
book's complete version, written in Aramaic. This dates is about 150 A.D. And this version puts Revelation before 70 A.D., right about 67, 68 A.D. at the time of Nero. Now, we're going into Revelation. While we read it, I'm going to put this up for you to look at. I want you to notice when you get into the book that dragon, devil, and Satan are used interchangeably. Okay, as we go through it and read, note that dragon, devil, and Satan are all used interchangeably. Now, a good verse to look at is 12 9. In fact, before I read it, open to the 12th chapter, verse 9. Look at Satan there. The great dragon was hurled down. That ancient serpent called the devil or Satan. So there in one verse, you have the dragon identified with the devil, identified with Satan. Okay? Now, something else to know here. What is happening here, the battle is not literally between Satan and the people of God. The people of God are this battle going on right here on this earth. But what he's doing is Satan is being personified in Nero and the Roman Empire. They were fighting, fighting the church at this time, specifically Nero, the instance he used to be as a tool against them. Now before we even read this, I'd like to look at a couple of examples if you want to turn and note in the Old Testament where the dragon and the serpent and other monsters and things of this nature are used to personify an ungodly power such as Babylon or Egypt that was persecuting God's people at that time. Turn over first to Isaiah 27, verse 1. In that day, the Lord will punish his sword, his fierce and great and powerful sword, Libethon, the gliding serpent, Libethon, the coiling serpent. He will slay the monster of the sea in that day. All right, he goes ahead, talks about destruction. His context here is dealing with Babylon. And notice after he slays Libethon, the monster of the sea, the coiling serpent. Notice that Libethon, serpent, Monster is all used interchangeably. Verse 6, in the days to come, will, Jacob will take root. Israel will bud and blossom and fill the world with fruit. Okay? In verse 8, by warfare and exile, you contend with her. With fierce blast, he drives her out. Okay, what had happened here? Remember that Judah was taken by exile into Babylon. But then after Judah punished, was punished by Babylon, then God
The word serpent, the word Lilithon, is the same Greek word. And the translators rendered it in those different ways. And when we look at uh, the Old Testament and the Greek Septuagint, uh, this is a Septuagint made 250 to 280 BC. This word Lilithon that you have in 27 word is the same word that you have over in Revelation referring to the dragon. Same Greek word. Now why they rendered it in various ways, I don't know. Uh, the King James translator started it, and then it simply got into the language that way it was used. But it was rendered in various ways. I might add that there are several words in the Bible, especially in the Old Testament, that nobody was really positive about what it should be rendered. And then so based on the context, they gave it a rendering. A good example is the term for serpent over in Genesis. When you have the Hebrew word Nahash, nobody really knows the meaning of, but based on the context, it was given this term serpent. Okay, so we have then a, a dragon or serpent, Lithophon, used to personify Babylon. Now turn over to Ezekiel 29.3. Ezekiel 29.3. Look at our context again. Look at verse 3. Seek to him and say, this is what the sovereign Lord says, I am against you, Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Notice now, you great monster lying among the streams. So here, Pharaoh is depicted, by the way, in the King James, does it say monster there? Great dragon, okay. Same word. Now you can see here's this translation, renders it monster. Sherwood says in the uh, King James, it's dragon. Alright, again, if you were reading this in the Greek, this word, dragon or monster, is the same word that you have over in Revelation. In other words, the Greek Septuagint has the same Greek word in this chapter 29, verse, verse 1, or verse 3, as you have over in Revelation for this dragon, this dragon that's rendered over there. But our point is that this, that Pharaoh, who is a persecutor of God's people, an ungodly reprobate, is personified with the term great dragon. Okay? Now, in Isaiah 14 and verse 12, another example, turn over there. In fact, this one's been misused to be literal Satan. Uh, and by the first time I ever heard it preached, it was, it was preached that way. Isaiah 14 and verse 12. How have you fallen from heaven, O morning star? Now the King James says Lucifer, right? How have you fallen from heaven, O Lucifer? Or, this translation says, O morning star, son of dawn, you have been cast down to the earth, you who once laid low the nations. Alright, so this verse, talking about, how have you fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, or morning star, son of dawn, you have been cast down to the earth, you who once laid low the nations. This has been preached, I don't know, telling how many times, having references to Satan, literally, supposedly, sinning and then being cast out of heaven and deceiving the nations. But that's not it. Let's look at the context. It starts back here in 13.1. Chapter 13, verse 1. Keep in mind, the writer didn't write chapters and verses. An oracle concerning Babylon 
then he's talking about the judgment on Babylon. Verses 9, starting verse 9, the day of the Lord is coming, a cruel day. Then look at verse 19. Babylon, the jewel of the kingdoms, the glory of the Babylonian's pride, will be overthrown by God like Sodom and Gomorrah. She will never be inhabited or lived in. Then in verse chapter 14, the Lord will have compassion on Jacob. Once again, he will choose Israel and will settle down in their own land. Then he gets back to the king. Look at verse 3 now, chapter 14. On the day the Lord gives you relief from suffering and turmoil and cruel bondage, you will take up this taunt against the king of Babylon. And then you're still, in verse 12, with the king of Babylon. How have you fallen from heaven, O Lucifer? Our morning star, son of the dawn, you have been cast down to earth, you who once laid low the nation. The one that was cast down, that was not Satan being cast out of heaven. Uh, this is Babylon, this great kingdom that has risen to this high position, that is being cast down and defeated and put so that they never be inhabited again. But again, we see the figurative language used to personify. Well, we're going to have to find the same thing in Revelation. We're going to find this great dragon that's cast down. And what people have done is, is the same thing that they did over there. They've taken a turn, and keep in mind, John has seen a vision. Now, John may see a literal dragon or a serpent, whether he's seen a vision. But remember, this vision signifies something. It's like in the days when uh, Pharaoh uh, had his dream, and he saw the seven fat cows, and the seven lean cows eat up the fat cows. And then he saw the ears of corn, and they were devoured by seven lean ears of corn. Well, this wasn't something that literally happened. That's what Pharaoh saw. Then there was an interpretation to it. Of course, we know the interpretation that was given to it by Joseph. In the same way, Isaiah uses poetic metaphors, figurative languages, uses terms to personify evil forces. And so it is in the book of Revelation. John sees something. And what we have is apocalyptic literature, where a lot of symbolic terms and figurative language is used to depict something. But what is literally going on now is what we already know it. The holy city, chapter 11, trodden underfoot, 42 months, God's witnesses, persecuted, put to death, but then they come out victorious, whatever they, the things that they've said come to pass. And as we get into the 12th chapter, we're going to have God's people persecuted, trying to stamp them out, trying to stop the, the force of God's people. It's not a literal dragon. The dragon is personified. The force that is fighting God's people, and God's people are fleeing, and God's people are being personified in the 12th chapter. Okay, let's read that 12th chapter then. A great and wondrous sign appeared in heaven. The woman clothed the sun and the moon under her feet, and a crown of 12 stars on her head. Of course, you've got the 12 apostles, 12 tribes of Israel. She was pregnant, cried out in pain, as she was about to give birth. Then another sign appeared in heaven, an enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on his head. His tail slipped a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth. Who was about to give birth? So that he might devour her child the moment he was born. 
She gave birth to a male child who will rule all the nations with an armed scepter. And her child was snatched up to God in his throne. The woman fled into the desert to a place prepared for her by God where she might take care of herself for how long? Well, 160 days. And there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon. The dragon and his angels fought by But he was not strong enough, and they lost their place in heaven. The great dragon was hurled down. That ancient serpent called the devil, or Satan, hurled down to the earth, and his angels with him. Then I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God, and the authority of his Christ. For the accuser of our brothers, who accuses them before our God day and night, has been hurled down. They overcame him by the blood of the Lamb, by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Therefore rejoice, you heaven, and you who dwell in them. But woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has gone down to you. He is filled with fury, because he knows that his time is short. When the dragon saw that he had been hurled to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. The woman was given two wings of a great, uh, of a great eagle so that she might fly to the place prepared for her in the desert where she would be taken care of for notice time, times, and half a time. All right, notice how this is used interchangeably with 160 days. Then from his mouth the serpent spewed water like a river to overtake the woman and sweep her away with a torrent. But the earth helped the woman by opening its mouth and swallowing the river that the dragon had spewed out of his mouth. Then the dragon was enraged at the woman and went off to make war against the rest of her offspring, those who obey God's commands and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And the dragon stood on the shore of the sea. Okay, now, pause there. Right, I'll do that pretty quick. 
use there. It's like the writer wanted to put emphasis on this that he was talking talk about. By the way, to include the literal dating of something in figurative language is not unusual. But for example, we won't go for lack of time, but I'll tell you what, we'll do it next week. We get over to Isaiah, the seventh chapter. And in figurative language there, in prophecy, there is a literal period of time that is given that's fulfilled exactly concerning some events that's going to happen in the history of Israel. But emphasis is put here, and the children of God, and can't you see now that put yourself in the position of the Christians that are receiving this letter? Can't you see what this would do to you? Number one, you wouldn't have any problem with who this dragon was, okay? Or who the beast is. Why? Why would that be no problem at all? The beast, the serpent, uh, the dragon. Why would that be no problem at all to you when you initially, if you were in one of these churches and you received this letter? Sure. You're, you're living at that time. You know who the persecuting force is. And so it's no problem. You know, and not only this, if, the, if you're living at this time, you also see the people of that day, their Bible was the Holy Scriptures, the Old Testament. No. You know, it's this is characteristic of the writing of the Jewish prophets. Remember, all the apostles are Jews. John's a Jew. John's background is the Old Testament Scriptures. And the prophets, as we've seen, they used dragon and libethon and monster in Lucifer to personify the persecuting forces of that particular day. And by the way, they didn't invent it. It was in common use at that time, and they simply used it. And this type of language that we're reading in Revelation is nothing that in any way was invented by John. It's language that was in common use at that particular time. Pardon me. And those people were familiar with this type of terminology. And it was used. And as Sherwood pointed out, it's difficult for a person like today, when he sits down and reads Revelation, he sits down in the 20th century, and he just reads about a dragon and, and a serpent and, and a persecuting force and a beast. Well, how, how does he know who that is? There's only one way he can know, and that's to study the historical setting. And so the only way nobody can interpret it without studying the historical setting and identifying, hey, we need John write this book. Who was it written to? What was the situation when it was written? And then when we do that, then we can put ourselves in the same position of those people. Then when it comes to the figurative language, we have to ask ourselves a question. Remember like we studied on, on idioms on Sunday night? A lot of poetic metaphors and idioms that are next to impossible to understand to a people in another language are easily understood by the people in that particular language that use those poetic metaphors and that figurative language and those types of idioms. That's why we have to go back and study them and their culture and their customs and their use of words in order to find out how these things are, are used. Anybody else have any uh, questions? And remember again, Josephus, by the way, uh, it's one of the most interesting pieces of reading, at least for me, on, on this area was to to read what is said here and read what Jesus said about the destruction of Jerusalem, the downfall of the city, the tribulation, how it would be the worst thing that ever happened to them, and then to sit down and read Josephus' account. 
I mean, it just, it just sounds like you're reading the literal fulfillment of all. Josephus records well over a million people that was killed at the time of the destruction of Jerusalem. He also records that not only did they kill all of those people, that when the armies came in, there was dead bodies all over the place, and the stench was terrible. And they took people by the thousands and took them down to the valley of Gehenna, the word was translated hell, took them down to the valley of Gehenna and literally burnt them up by the thousands. Josephus records also that at this time a persecution of Jews began all over the Roman province. It wasn't just here, but it was all over the Roman province. And then also in history we can see that with this, Judaism ceases to be the persecuting force against the people of God. So here, the woman is personifying the people of God. And she's depicted with the 12 stars on her, 12 stars on her head. And okay, for whatever reason, you've got 12 apostles, the 12 tribes, you've got, got uh, of Israel. And here she is, personifying the people of God. Alright, then, when he talks about the dragon, he uses the term 7 and 10. The word seven was used by the Jews simply to mean completeness or perfection. In other words, that, that the fullness of all their force was directed against God's people, the complete force of this dragon. Uh, of course, we can see where they, where they would, the Jews would derive that term. Going back to God creating six days resting on the seventh, the whole thing uh, finished in over, over a seven-day period. Uh, let me see. I was... Oh, one other time, the uh, term devil and Satan used in this way. Uh, remember in uh, uh, Matthew 16 and verse 23, uh, Peter had uh, just been told by Jesus that uh, he was going to be killed and certain things were going to happen. Remember, Peter took his sand and says, No, we will never allow this to happen to you. What did Jesus say? Get behind me, Satan. It wasn't wrong, Satan, was it? Satan's just a word that means adversary. And so any force or any individual that takes upon himself to become the adversary of God's people or of God can be referred to by the term Satan. It's just simply an adversary. Just like we say that Jesus lives in us to the extent that we emulate his life. The adversary lives in us, or we are the adversary to the extent that we emulate and practice the forces against God's people. Okay, it's a little after eight, so let's pause uh, for tonight. And then uh, next week, we're going to get down and notice the verses in here that have reference to how they overcome the victory that took place as a result of what happens there. And then we'll study the feast of the 13th chapter, look at the number 666, and then maybe get into the 14th chapter, I don't know. But anyway, we should finish the 13th chapter next week and maybe get some into the 14th chapter. Anybody with any comments you want to make before we close out?